NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. You can trust your car to the place with the star to get you to the things you love or travel near and far. With Texaco at your side, that can be a lovely ride. So trust your car to Texaco Star. Texaco with Tecron. Unbeatable mileage. Between the kids being home and hosting, everything in our house gets used up in summer. With Instacart, I can save money by stocking up on all my favorite summer brands. I save time by getting everything delivered in as fast as an hour. And I save myself a sink full of dirty dishes by stocking up on paper plates for the annual summer cookout. Save more on summer essentials? Spend more time enjoying summer. Add summer to cart. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This Red Inker is on radio commentary, so I got one of my favorite commentators to come in and discuss it. Daniel Norcross, broadcaster and occasional writer. In this episode, we talk about how cricket commentary is basically surgery or a Hitchcock bomb, or what do you say when nothing happens? On top of both being commentators, we've always been very obsessed with commentators and how cricket broadcasts and sounds and everything sort of come together. So that's essentially what this is. It's on the art and science of cricket commentary. We started together. You formed Test Match Sofa and you did the Ashes in 2009. And I came on, I think, for your second series in England versus South Africa I think it'd be fair to say that we learned about commentary sort of together. What we did would be hard to do in a sort of classroom environment. If for no other reason, you're probably not allowed to bring in big bottles of rum. What do you remember about learning commentary in those very crazy days? Well, actually, we had to learn quite the hard way, didn't we? Because we had no crowd noise, which was a real massive impediment. You really realise when you start to do, I was going to say proper commentary, it's no more or less proper, but when you do it at the ground just how much you use the crowd and how it lifts you and how your tone is changed. So we were having to create atmosphere where there was none because we were essentially in an otherwise silent environment. So the first thing I guess I learned was the importance in radio commentary of filling space, not allowing silence and stuff to drift but the other part that we had to learn with Test Match Sofa was that we were an alternative, and that was the point. So it had to be alternative. So some of the things that I was subsequently going to end up doing, I was deliberately avoiding doing. I was trying to be unnecessarily controversial. I was trying to, not saying, you know, trying to be sweary, but you were trying to bring a very different perspective and to hook listeners in that way because we had to have a point of difference. It's quite interesting looking back on it because I notice now when I broadcast on radio, I still talk too fast and I talk too fast in normal life. So that's not a thing just for commentary. But I also, I think because I learned on Test Match Sofa, that silence was so much more silent than you have at a cricket ground. And one thing I, I've worked a lot with Neil Manthorpe 
And Neil Manthorpe, you know, he's got some incredible, we, in TalkSport we call it the Manthorpe pause, where his sentences are almost four different sentences that he's kind of stitched together with his own sort of soundtrack of the background of the cricket in them. And Tesmat Shofar wasn't really invented for that, was it? We, we were honking things. There were tweets being brought in all the time. It was a completely different kind of environment. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I suppose what you call it is a zoo format, wasn't it? So in order to create a richer noise, which is something that you're not really aware of until you are making that noise, you know, because you, you listen, as we said earlier, you listen to radio and it has that richness of noise. So to create that noise, we had, that's why we invented the jingles, wasn't it, really? Mm. To give a difference, a kind of a musical note to it all. And that's why we also used social media extensively because it meant that, during slow passages of play, if, if the cricket isn't really giving you anything to say, even now on the radio, I have to delve into other areas to go to sometimes during a long partnership or, you know, the worst of all, when a side scores 500, bowls side up 250, doesn't enforce the mm. follow-on and there's no jeopardy. We see that quite a lot, especially in matches in Australia because the, the heat and the wickets dictate that that's the tactic you're going to employ. So when we found ourselves in those kind of situations on the sofa, that's when we lent heavily on audience interaction to try break things up to give ourselves new and different ideas so that you could keep a pace going i mean test match sofa had a a responsibility to be pacey more than test match special does test match special tends to be reactive to the as talksport does isn't it reactive to mm. what's happening in front of you whereas what we had to do was kind of make our own running which meant that your brain was a lot more sort of fervid, wasn't it? I mean, we, it was actually, I think, more exhausting to do Test Match Sofa than I've ever found doing TMS, uh, Test Match Special. The only difference I would say is maybe that if you haven't commentated for even a month and you come on, I think there's a, that day you might get that sort of pressure. Whereas I, th I always felt with Test Match Sofa, I got fit because of Test Match Sofa because I would need to walk home. Remember when we, we moved to Peckham and I, I lived by the Oval, so I would walk home. It took me about an hour, but I'd almost need that just to be away from everything else for that little period because it was it was quite an intense broadcast, which you don't get. It's probably like making a, a very long radio show, realistically, and I suppose that's what it was. It, it was different than commentary. When did you work out that you could do it? Was it instantaneous or did that take time? Sure, that's a oh, Have you worked it out? I, yeah, that's a difficult question to answer, isn't it, without sounding like a bit of a prick. But uh, no, I felt very confident very quickly. It's a strange thing. The very first couple of commentaries take you a bit by surprise, don't they, I think? I mean, we saw it with one of Test Match Sofa's best commentators, Nigel Henderson. His first day on the job, he was absolutely terrible. I mean, getting the rhythm of it right, just simply easing into a bowler at the top of his mark, delivering a ball and finishing the ball... Because when you first do it, you've got a sensory overload. And so you, you're not quite sure what to say first, even though you've heard lots and lots and lots of commentary. But actually, I found that within about half an hour to an hour of doing it, partly because there were so many other things going on, you know, that we had the technical problems, just it was something innovative. I had a producer who was quite high maintenance and people around <laughs> me who were quite high maintenance. And so... I sort of relaxed into it, really. And I'll be brutally honest with you. I mean, it was a time in my life that was quite tempestuous because my mother died one week before our very first broadcast. And then my dad died six months later. So actually, I, I was finding the commentary was an escape. It was a place to go away from having to think of the day-to-day -day crisis of looking after 
a living parent and then having to sort out the probates and all the stuff that goes with, mm. you know, family tragedy. And so I was able to hurl myself into this place. And I found very quickly, much like Nigel Henderson, actually, because the second time Nigel did it, he was terrific. And once you kind of find the key and unlock that door, then the rhythm of cricket, as long as you let yourself be taken by the rhythm rather than force the rhythm on it, then it actually becomes a bit like riding a bike, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, you have better and worse days. You describe things better and worse. And you have better or worse insights because every day you feel slightly different from the other. But in terms of the mechanics of it, here's the Aryan Petri dish experiment, Stuart Broad at the top of his mark, his hair billowing in this gentle oval breeze as he runs away from us from the Vauxhall end into the right-handed Ponting who steps up on his toes and punches through the offside through the covers for four. You know, it's not rocket science. Mm. It's really interesting, isn't it? I found the pattern and the rhythm of it a little bit hard because I'd never deconstructed it in my mind before. So I was sort of coming at it. I found the other chair, the, the second chair, the analysis stuff, really, really easy because that could be someone asking me in a pub and me over-explaining a concept that they, after 15 seconds, wish that there's an, something to interrupt me. And it turns out that <laughs> that's what happens in cricket, not in the pub where I go off for another half an hour. So I found that really easy. But the pattern, I remember... um. Jim Maxwell asked me to do an audition tape and I hadn't commentated probably since I'd been on Test Match Show for I hadn't done ball by ball. I'd done a little bit of analysis occasionally for BBC and County Guys had got me in and those sorts of things, but I hadn't done any ball by ball and he asked me to do it. So I went up and luckily the Middlesex guys let me on and I did my recording and then I, I sent it off to him and he said, you beats off. And he ended up getting me to do analysis rather than the more obvious thing, which would be you just have to get your rhythm back and your pattern back. I ended up doing analysis. And it was just because I couldn't get that sort of natural thing. Whereas I think for guys like you and, and Nigel Henderson and Neil Manthorpe's another one, that rhythm is much more natural for you guys. Yeah. I mean, what I do to set the rhythm is just an easy trick, actually. And for radio, it's absolutely necessary. It's a trick I learned when I was 18. I go to the Oval. And there was this blind guy, lovely bloke, and his hearing was astounding, as often is the case. And I remember saying to him, it's Clark bowling, and that's been edged down to third man. And he said, I know it's been edged down to third man. I can hear that. Is there a third man? I thought, ah, good point. Right, so you know where it is, but you don't know where the field is. So I try to do it at the start of every over, and whenever there's a field set change, I will place the rhythm in by saying Broad's coming over the wicket. He's got two slips, gully, point, extra, mid-off, mid-wicket, square leg and a long leg. And then just by doing that and going round in that circle, that has a natural rhythm to it and it ends on a downbeat and a long leg. Then he runs away from us, he's up to the wicket. And then after that, you're there, you're, you're in the rhythm. Tony Cozier once said something which is I've taken to heart quite a lot and I try to do it but don't always. He said... Never say he bowls because you waste something there. So he's up to the wicket and Ponting plays that full ball off the front foot into the offside or something of that sort. So you take out he bowls because that, with a fast bowler, can wreck your rhythm. Once you've said he bowls, the ball's been delivered. It's down the other end and then you're playing catch up. Mm. So that was quite a nice tip. I read him saying that, I think, quite early on in Test Match Sofa. So it sort of... It helped me. The other commentators, I mean, they often say, you know, he bowls. There's nothing wrong with that if that's their trigger. So some of them will say he bowls before he bowls. I think Jim Maxwell said to me once that he times his he bowls before he's bowled, you know, just before. Yeah. 
So that's what Jim taught me, and that's what I now do when I commentate. So I do a good he bowls, basically before he's got into his action. So yeah. just as he's coming up behind the umpire, according to me, he's already delivered the ball. But I like the cosy thing. But that just shows you how much rhythm and pattern it is. And we listen to these things a lot, but we, as cricket fans and cricket watchers, we're not always deconstructing what that is. And you see some people get dropped in, and Test Match Sofa was perfect for this, watching people who know cricket so well being dropped in to commentating and suddenly going, I don't know what order anything happens, and just watching them get lost. It's really interesting, that sort of finding that balance and finding the rhythm. It is. I've set myself, and this comes totally naturally now, a kind of order, really, which goes basically the field, if it needs to be said. You don't say it every ball, but if it needs to be said, start of an over or when there's a field set change, or when you're just trying because your summariser hasn't got anything to say. So you're just trying to fill in that space. So field, who's bowling, to whom. Then after that, it's reactive, of course, but if it's a a full ball outside the off stump, you can say it's full outside the off stump, left through to the keeper. But you've also got to be able to react to something happening. So edged gone, don't faff about trying to work out his quarter. I remember one of our colleagues on Testament, so for Katie Walker, and she was so concerned with getting it right. So being able to say, that's taken the outside edge and gone to first slip where X has taken the catch and so-and-so is out, that she was actually going through all that while the ball's been thrown in the air and the fielders are all hugging each other and you've missed all the colour. Mm. So you have to have the ability to react rapidly to change the circumstance. The crowd is going to start shouting quickly. So you have to be able to go edged gone not and he's played a flashing driver that that's taken the edge and the keeper's taken the catch because by then the crowd's gone and your headphones are all filled with this noise and you've missed the news you know Mm. so there's that but the other part of it is following the ball to the very end Alison Mitchell says this on on a recent podcast just done actually on, on the history of commentary that one of the first things she learned was taking the ball from the moment we consider it live, which should be the bowler at the top of his mark. Don't mm-hmm. always get that chance if the summarizer's talking, but top of his mark to the point when the ball is dead, it's finished. So you are in control of that whole process. And what you do is you follow the ball. And this is something that Jonathan Agnew said to me when one area I've struggled with always is runouts. And this is all getting quite technical now, isn't it? But I like it. Runouts. You'd think, why well, run out? It's difficult. Well, run-outs are difficult because you've got a number of different moving parts. So your eye is drawn to the batsman running. You might sense a mix-up. At the same time, the ball might have gone out to deep mid-wicket. And they're thinking about coming back for a second, then somebody sent somebody back. And you're thinking to yourself, God, I need to explain the mix-up. But you don't, actually. What Jonathan told me was, and it solved all run-out problems for me, just follow the ball every time. So in that situation, ball's gone out to Jason Roy, say it, deep mid-wicket. You can say they're turning for two, it's going to be tight, throw comes in, bails off, and then you go back to describe the mix-up then. Because if you try to describe the mix-up at that point, you'll miss the actual run-out. You'll end up doing what I always did on run-outs, which is going, it's got to send it back, oh, oh no, it's off, oh, dear, oh, dear, which is just noise, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> you're sort of conveying that something dramatic's happened, but if you're listening, you're going, what are you talking about? So, Following the ball is a really good way of calming yourself down. If you're starting commentary and you want like a tip, you just make sure you have your eye on it. Now, we had the trouble when we were doing Test Match Sofa that we were doing everything off tube. Mm. So 
Sometimes it was hard for us because we weren't sure what the field was. Sometimes, you know, the ball would go high. How many times have you and I called one day internationals off the tube that, that's gone high in the air and sailing over the boundary into the hands of mid-off? <laughs> and he's gone, you know. I was trying to explain that to someone else recently. They were talking about a cricket commentator who always got that wrong. And I said, a TV commentator. And I said, my guess is if they're getting that wrong over and over again and they're at the ground, it's because they're commentating directly off the TV, which a lot of TV commentators do, to be fair. And they're encouraged to do more often than not. It's absolutely a perfect way of commentating. You actually get far more information. You can see the ball. You can see the seam. You can see the delivery. You get all the good stuff right up until the fact that balls hit up in the air. And then you're like, oh, he's missing that. No, he ha- and that's gone out of the stadium. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. But where TV is fortunate over radio, you'll know this yourself because of your work with TalkSport, but the way we work it on TMS is that the ball-by-baller watches out the window, right? Does not look at the monitor until there's a replay. Mm. The summariser looks at the monitor, which often results in the ball-by-baller really missing the amount of turn, the amount of swing. It's very hard to see from 100 yards away, high up. You can't get that nuance. Yeah. And which is why the ex-pro then comes back and says, well, that was a googly and it's turned sharply, you know. And you go, right, was it? I mean, I was just looking with a naked eye. But we're having to do that because we have to be in control of where the ball has gone because on radio, Mm. you have to describe that ball. On TV, the TV commentator really needn't get into that pickle because he can say it's been hit high in the air and then just let the pictures do the talking and then describe the end like Richie always used to do. Richie never described what was happening as it happened. He added to what you'd seen. Mm. And if TV commentators did that all the time, they wouldn't get caught out. Because that is true. The TV would, wouldn't lie, you know. It's something an American friend of mine said when he listened to cricket radio. He said, I don't understand. I listen to baseball and the announcer's saying, and that's a knuckleball or that's a curveball and that's a slider and that's a fastball. And I said, yeah, but baseball announcers are like 30 meters from the action. They might be 50 meters from the action. We could be 120 meters. Yeah. Some of those grounds, you're ridiculously far away. And trying to pick them, I can pick a wrong one from behind brilliantly. So it doesn't matter how far away I am, I can usually pick a wrong from behind, out of the hand. When I'm at the other end, and you've seen me bat, you'll be aware of this, I have no idea what's coming. (laughs) So if I'm at the wrong end for a leg spinner, I'm just, unless I can see the ball spin. And then you've got the batsman's bum, you've got the wicketkeeper. There's so many things in your way, aren't there? That's the hellish part, you know. The very hardest thing to commentate is a spinner bowling towards you. Keeper's obviously standing up, Mm. and there's a slip in as well. I mean, the very first wicket I got on Test Match, especially in a Test Match, was Edgebaston 2016, and I think it was Hales. And I couldn't tell how he was out. I knew he was out, but I couldn't tell that he'd been bowled. You might say, how on earth can you not know it's bowled? Well, you don't, because the mm. keeper is right there over the stumps. You know from the reaction that something dramatic's occurred, but that's when your summariser comes to your aid at that point you know if it's toughers he'll say bold him bold him and while you're screaming out he's got him and toughers might say bold him and then you get to see the replay and then you get to see how much it's turned and all that stuff but you can't i mean you know the ags bowl mm-hmm. if you commentate from the roof and the ags bowl which i've had to do a few times on top of the hotel you are as far away as i think i've ever been even in the mcg i haven't felt a worse sight line actually although that said, the worst sightline I ever had was the SCG because we were placed at deep backward square leg because oh. the police needed the box behind the boulder's arm. Don't know why, but apparently it was essential to keep an eye on troublemakers. 
That was 1718, wasn't it? That's You're right. in that stand. That the Brawonga. Brawonga stand. And it says when you get up there, they used to be the overflow box quite regularly. So I always used to be thrown in there, especially in the early days. Yep. And it has a sign on it that says something like, no more than 60 people can be in the top of this stand. And I always go, well, who's counting? Because yeah. there seems to be people coming and going all day. And this <laughs> is really dangerous. And it's like hanging onto the top of the roof. Do you remember the design of it? It looks like it's made yeah. to fall. It looks like it's the sort of thing that just one day just flops over. And I'm like, this is the time it's going to happen. There's a lot of large former cricketers walking around up here. Quite often the selectors for both teams are up there and the wags. There's usually like a sometimes commentary teams. There's a huge amount of people. Anyway, that takes us away slightly from our point. But yeah, it's even worse when you're side on to the wicket, isn't it? That's absolute hell. I mean, during that game, I had the usual James Vince dismissal caught at second slip. You know, second slip's the absolute worst in that situation because second slip's lined up when you're side on with the keeper. So as you're looking down that side, again, you're just winging it, basically. You've just Mm. got to not have panic. You've got to tell from the body language of the slip fielders that something has happened. And you see that the ball's been tossed in the air and you see the wicketkeeper going up and you just hope that Vince has played the same shot he's played seven times already in the Ashes series and got out that way because it's easier that way than had he done something awkward. I mean, Derby was dreadful for that until they put in the new stand. I once, this was the toughest game I've ever commentated between the Indians and Derbyshire. So the Indians, as is their won't when they play these games, have all 17 members of the squad Mm. play and they just come and go. They come on and off like ice hockey. You've got no real warning of who's come on and who's come off. And the fifth ball of the last over before lunch, Chesney Hughes, the left-hander, was batting. At least you can notice him from a long way away, just shoulders alone. Well, you sort of can, except when the umpire is sort of in your way, because square leg umpire, right? So I'm in a line. He's a left-hander. It's a double trouble. Square leg umpire's between me and him, Chesney. On comes Ravindra Jadeja. It's the fifth ball of the over. I'm already a bit cheesed off because this game is the hardest game to commentate. You've got no context. Nobody cares about the score. You're just commentating a net. There's no jeopardy. There's no excitement. He played this ball out. I saw the ball sort of land, not quite at his feet, at his back foot, really, or be at his back foot, but stopped. And then the players just trooped off. And I said, well, that's intriguing. They can't be bothered either. So they've given up with one ball left of the over to go before lunch. Anyway, that is lunch. And then as the umpire moved in, I saw that one of the stumps was bent back at an angle. (laughs) It bowled him. (laughs) But I had no way of telling. I had no way of telling from the player's reaction. I had no way of telling because I couldn't see the stumps because the umpire was between him and it. That side on is an absolute nightmare. Ian O'Brien did a couple of seasons at Derby from that box and he told me that the trick with side on is you just have to watch the batsman's feet. You don't look at his hands or his bat. You gauge what the ball's doing if it's swinging by where their feet position go. And you see their hands extend out after. So mm. if they're kind of lurching at it, you get the idea there's been a bit of a way swing. But you have to pick up totally different triggers. When you're right behind, and we've commentated so many balls now and seen so much cricket, that people don't appreciate how their instinct will help them out. It does. In just the same way as it helps out a batsman, the batsman's not thinking. He's getting a whole series of cues from a bowler bowling. The commentator has a whole series of cues that they don't realise from the batsman's body shape, which help to inform them of whether that ball swung away, swung in, whether it's spun, which way it's going, whether it's shot, it's kept a little bit low. All that you pick up by instinct. But from side on, you have to find 
totally different instincts and interpret them. So, yeah, it's hell. And I don't think Sydney and Derby are the only grounds that have done that. Lots of commentators have had to endure that sort of thing. Most of the time, you're pretty lucky mm. at a test ground, certainly. But, but you know, not, not always. Wormsley was a, a nightmare because the other one is height. I don't know if you've ever commentated at essentially ground level. Yeah, it's impossible. It is. Now, at Hove, when there's a game at Hove that's on the telly, the Sky Boys have the main commentary box, which is quite low down anyway. It's a bit like Worcester. You know, it's only sort of one floor up, so you haven't got a lot of elevation to get perspective, which you really need for shots to go in the air, for example. And then there's a tiny box that the BBC, Five Live Sports Extra team will use. You can fit two people in. But the county commentary guys will frequently do it from a table at ground level, literally ground level. And that is really tough. And that's at an angle as well. So they're in effect at third man, relatively wide third man. Now you imagine I had to do something similar at Wormsley. The first, I say the first test match I did, the first test match I did for TMS was actually the women's test between England and India at Wormsley. And we were in a gazebo. (laughs) And, you know, Wormsley, it was about four feet off the ground. Not off the ground, but, you know, it's that, that raised mound that goes around it. It's only about four feet off. And you try telling the easy difference between, it first to me, there weren't a lot of televised Indian matches at that time mm. between Rajeshwari Gaikwad and Hector Bisht wearing hats from a distance and at ground level. It's extremely difficult. So what you tend to do is just allow your commentary to be a little less specific until you know for sure what's happened. And you can do that. In your form of words, can't you? You can, where you have the confidence at Lords, the best, for my mind, would you say the best site ground, probably? Oh, Trent Bridge. Oh, yeah. Oh, actually, Trent Bridge, you're a little higher. Yeah. A little high. Yeah. I'd say Lords is just magnificent. Mm. That's where you can go, edged gone. That's where you can go. That's going to run down the hill for four. It's going to go to the right of cover. You've got the perfect perspective to see all your angles. Mm. When you don't have that, you slightly fudge it a bit till you can go back and the problem with of course Wormsy was and uh, that game was it wasn't being televised so you didn't have any stuff to cling on to the advantage of that though is that no one can see so I was gonna say you can say pretty much what you like <laughs> I've always said that riding on county cricket was my favorite thing before the cameras came in yeah. because you just wouldn't get 34 people afterwards go think you'll find that was wasn't a paddle sweep mm. it was a normal sweep but it, you got it a little bit finer because it got inside no in county cricket, it's a paddle sweep. If I say it's a paddle sweep, perfect example of that in writing, but it works in commentary as well, was one of my first ever games in the UK, 2008 county game. And Imran Tahir was bowling. He bowled a what looked like to some of us as a zooter, what looked like to some of us as a flipper, and what looked like to others as a top spinner. And I remember all the different columns all going with different things, and it just didn't matter. Whereas now, there'd be a blog on that. Someone would do a podcast on it. You know, things have changed for the yeah. better, but it doesn't mean that those sorts of things happen. Well, we're screwed with that now as well, of course, because on TMS, until recently, although some people were watching it on the telly and then, you know, and having the radio on, that happened. But they didn't have social media necessarily in, in yep. quite the same way. Now, recently, with the deal that, the BBC have done, they get the clips and they put the clips of the wickets up. Now, before you were able to go edge gone or so that's taken the off stump. Sometimes, you know, when they're bowling towards you, as we said before, with the keeper in the way, mm. you might say, oh, well, that's taken as off stump and only to discover 
later that it's his middle stump. <laughs> but now, with a bloody clip on, you are terribly exposed. So you have to be a little bit more careful about bodging it, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about the mechanics of it. The one mechanic that we haven't talked about is... I remember when you first got the job, I think it might have been when you started on the men's cricket, Jonathan Wilson putting up a tweet saying that your voice was the very best at public school and too many cigarettes could buy. I forget the exact tweet, (laughs) but you are blessed. I remember having a similar conversation with Mel Jones. So when I was consulting for ABC, I was saying to ABC, I don't understand why you're not getting Mel Jones involved. She has a broadcast voice Mm. and she knows cricket and she's an engaging person to listen to. You're kind of hitting a few sweet spots there. How lucky do you think you are to have the voice? Oh, enormously lucky, yeah. Massively lucky. A broadcasting voice. Somebody said to me once, the only person who's ever told me not to give up smoking, I'm not going to say who it was because I don't want to embarrass him, but he was somebody who offers tips to broadcasters and his voice is a little higher than he'd like it to be. (laughs) And he said to me at one point, do you smoke? I said, yes, I do. And I thought it was going to be one of those, because it's always that conversation. You shouldn't. It's very bad for you. He said, never stop. I said, really? Why? He says, well, because your voice is about four tones lower than it otherwise would be. And the depth of tone is great fortune to have. It's also cost me an awful lot in tax and health. So I'm, not, <laughs> I'm really not recommending it, kids. Don't go out there to smoke to become a commentator. But uh, I mean, it's one of the reasons. Mel Jones is a terrific broadcaster. I just think she's brilliant. But mm. one of the reasons why you're drawn to her is that the depth of her voice has such richness. And when you think back to all the broadcasters that we all really sort of obsess over, Arla, Tony Cozier, I mean, what a richness his voice, Michael Holding. One of the things that they tend to have in common is that they've got this kind of slight smokiness. Mm. I don't mean literally in terms of smoking. I mean, just the, the timbre of the voice, which is fortunate. The other thing that I had, and a lot of, broadcasters have as well is mimicry so when i was a kid i used to mimic all the time I used to mimic the muppets I used to mimic peter sellers doing cluzo you know i used to mimic the commentators everybody had a richie beddo impersonation but mine was a bit better than most and everybody tried to do a kermit and mine was a bit better so i'd kind of been using my voice not having the faintest idea that i was using this as part of training because i choose my voice it sounds crazy doesn't it but when I go into broadcast mode, I sort of decide I'm, I'm relatively accentless, aren't I? Really? I mean, it's not it's not entirely pate news or proper poshness or somebody from the royal family. But if I needed it to be, I could be. But essentially, I've got quite a neutral voice, neutral posh, neutral posh, exactly. And then I sort of choose how much I'm going to embellish it or not. So if I'm on air with Isabel Westbury, <laughs> who has got a cut class accent. I have a posh off and I just get hyper posh. I'm not going to be out poshed by anyone in the box. <laughs> so you listen to us together and it's, you know, not to everyone's taste probably, but <laughs> I really enjoy it. And then if I'm with toughers, my voice naturally becomes a little looser. And it's not a totally conscious thing. Mimicry is something that just happens to you. I remember when we used to go to Wales for our holidays, my mother, who was also a terrific mimic, she couldn't help it. So we would arrive at this farmhouse in Wales and the farmer who owned the farmhouse would, would come to greet us. And she'd go, oh, Farmer Jones, it's lovely to see you. And he'd go, mum, stop it. You're talking in a bad Welsh accent again. <laughs> but it's just the environment you're in. Now, obviously, you don't take it so far that you find yourself attempting to do Bajan accents in Barbados. But 
Sometimes you, have, you might. I, yeah, I have, <laughs> but, yeah, but you shouldn't. But your voice does modify slightly depending on the circumstance. So you're trying all the time when you're commentating, as well you know, you are creating a noise of fellowship, really, between you and the people you're working with. And what sounds best to the ear of a listener is when people are getting on well. Now, if somebody puts themselves above the person they're with, then it feels wrong. There's like a mismatch in the relationship between the, the commentator and the and the summariser, say. So you just naturally ape, I guess, the cadences of the person you're on with. I mean, I don't go so far as, you know, when I'm on with Jeffrey to say, hey, that's a terrible shot. What's he doing? You know, but the rhythm will be altered and the timbre of your voice will alter ever so slightly depending on a person that you're with. And I don't think it's conscious, but I think it's something that you do kind of unconsciously choose. You basically kind of talked about something there that I was going to bring up in the next question, which is you and I have sort of over the years discovered what makes a good commentator, perhaps because we're those sorts of people that we're always on the lookout for other people and talent. And we like, both of us like to work out how things work and how they come together. And through conversations, one of them is that ability to, I don't think it's fake friendship, but it's at the very least have an on-air friendship with someone. I remember first time I ever commentated with Steve Harmison, a mate texting me going, I didn't even know you knew Harmy. I was like, literally, I met him as he sat in the chair. And Harmy's got that ability yeah. as well. And you, you know, you and I both know that sometimes we work with people and the complete opposite is there. They don't have that. So my general thinking is that you need to have that ability to make it sound like you're in a friendship. And this is cricket commentary. This isn't all sports commentary. Another thing that I think is incredibly important is that you have lived a life because you have to fill in so much time, mm. just a, a phenomenal amount of time. And as you said, someone makes 580 and the other team's bowled out for 180 and then they don't enforce the follow-on. You've got to come up with two and a half days of talking what is a dead match. The other one is just be a natural conversationalist. So you want someone who can be in a situation with anyone or you know, suddenly Mick Jagger comes through the back of the box and you've got something to say on Mick Jagger and someone comes up on the screen or yeah. something happens in a cricketer's life. Those are the sorts of very basic things that I think, other than understanding cricket on an automatic level, so you can't be in a situation where the ball's hit off the pads and you think uh, that's hit to the leg side and that's gone near the umpire. That's square leg. That has to be automatic. But the rest of it is conversation, having lived a life, and that sort of natural friendship flow of almost playing a role every time. And great broadcasters have it. And cricket, it's not like football or many other sports. You're not just reacting, 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 reacting. Many times you're Having to come up with a whole narrative, he's knocked that ball to square leg again for no run. That's exactly right. And especially if you're, I say, lead commentator, we have ball-by-ballers and summarisers on the radio. And they're very clearly demarked roles. The ball-by-baller, as you know, picks up the ball from the moment the bowler's got it to the moment it's dead and describes everything, acts as a camera. It's basically a vocal camera for the person listening at home. The summariser talks to the cricket. So you've got to have a natural interest, I think, in people. Because once you've done the describing, you've got to want to know what the person next to you is thinking. Mm. And as you say, when those parts of the game don't lend themselves to any more analysis, I mean, what is there to analyse when a side's 320 ahead? The amount of times you can go, when are they going to declare? <laughs> it's a conversation that is very dull for the listener to hear. So inevitably, what you then are going to do is try to find 
other topics. Sometimes it'll be to the cricket because it might be around one side's general failings that have been repeated with the bat and talking to that issue. If you've got a summariser who's like that, if you've got a summariser like Tuffers, the world is your oyster. Mm. You can open up all sorts of avenues of conversation or Ebony Rain for Brent, for example. She'll probably kick something off because if she's finding the cricket has reached that stage, but it's, look, we find any cricket exciting, don't we? We go to the mm. common and see two kids playing. We're interested. We managed to have boundless enthusiasm for cricket, which is what has got us to where we are and what we do. But... Even then, there's better cricket and worse cricket. There's more exciting <laughs> cricket, less exciting cricket. I think we're allowed to say that. So at that point, that is when, as you say, the art of conversation is one that you, I guess you've either got or you haven't. I mean, I don't know if you learn that, do you? I think you have to go in with it to a certain extent. You might, if you're a very good broadcaster, I think you might be able to work out early on. Let's say you went from football or rugby or another sport and quite early on you move into cricket, you would work out very quickly that that is a tool of cricket. And if you can't do that, you end up becoming a very robotic commentator and all you're really doing at that point is describing things that are happening in front of you, which is an incredibly important part of the game, but it's cricket commentary has a license and a need really for something else. Oh, absolutely. It's a unique sports broadcast really. The nearest mm. thing you get to it is kind of golf or the bits in between races at, at a racing festival you know when you've got 25 minutes to fill before the next race but even in golf because there's so many games going on you just go to another bit of action most of the time whereas cricket actually literally has no action for 45 <laughs> seconds and then there is action and frequently the bit of action you've just seen barely amounts to action because it could be a ball that's gone gun barrel straight through to the keeper and there's no run and the ball's 52 overs old, it's doing nothing. So you are then really about finding a conversation which may be within cricket or within the cricket you're seeing or within cricket more widely or completely outside the cricket and maintaining that with the cricket itself as a rhythmic interlude every now and then to stop off your conversation. I mean, I'll have had conversations with toughers which have just proceeded over a whole over, you know, and I'll just break off to say that's been turned into the onside mm. straight to midwicket. There's no run. Sorry, toughers. And he'll continue with his thought. And at the end of it, you get an anecdote at the back of it. But that's just really good fun, isn't it? I mean, when you've got good raconteurs around you and people, don't forget, mm. I had the privilege of working with Graham Swan in my first men's test match at Edgebaston. And do you remember Moeen Ali in 2016 was just bowling those moon balls every now and then? Yes. Or just kept on flying out of his hand and goes up head high. And I said to him, what's going on here? And Graham Swan, being one of the finest off-spin bowlers England's ever produced and one of the better ones Test cricket's ever produced, was pretty much the perfect person to explain to me exactly <laughs> what Moeen was trying to do. And it's at times like that, you actually pinch yourself and think, how could I fail to get good conversations going when I've got people like that next to me who know and give me insights that I would never have. We operate our commentary much like a conversation that we'd have had amongst ourselves at the Oval. I've been to watch cricket with you before and we sit down and we natter away. Mm. If we also had sat next to us, Shane Warne, to talk about leg spin, specifically to talk about leg spin, then <laughs> that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? I mean, that yeah. would just be brilliant. And that's the privilege you get in the box. So you're acutely aware of that, I think. And 
you use it because it would be just irresponsible waste of your privilege not to use it. I definitely agree with that. Ian Danta recently put up, I say recently, I suppose it was when life was still normal. He put up a uh, tweet of his notes, incredibly detailed notes, very Ian Danta-like notes for a man who likes heavy metal music. He's the most organized person that you'll ever come across. Very professional. And I tweeted it to go, this is what a professional does. And then a bunch of people contacted me to go, well, what do you do in cricket? Well, it's very hard to explain, but it's very hard to go to that level of notes in cricket because so much of what you do like, so I would often, as a second person on air, I'll often go on with two facts or two stories or two ideas that I want to use and nothing else. I know that I've got those and sometimes I won't use them. I learned that in the Test Match Sofa days that you always needed something. If you don't use them, you don't use them. If cricket's great, then that's awesome. But I wouldn't have that much else. I know Adam Collins has his list of, was it adjectives or describing yep. words or whatever it is. And obviously, I probably have more stats than a normal commentator because I love stats and I like to be able to pull things up. But you don't see cricket commentators the way you do with other sports, having reels and reels of notes because it's a different kind of broadcast, isn't it? Well, it really is, yeah. I mean, there are some cricket commentators. I'm at one end of the spectrum. In many ways. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I bring a pad of paper and my iPad with me to every day. And I have gone whole test matches without writing a single thing in it, without writing a single note either during the day or before the day or whatever. Partly because, for me, if I see lots of words in front of me, they distract me from the job I've got to do, which is to be precisely in the moment. Partly because I do a lot of thinking about the game and the state of the game after the day's play or before the first day's play. And I might have done a bit of research and looked up some numbers, for example, and reminded myself that it was at this test match last year that such and such a thing happened but you're going to get caught up by the actual game. So if you've got that in front of you, two things happen to me. I get a little bit too fixated on what I've written down and wondering where I can shoehorn it in, which is the worst thing you can ever do. And the second thing is, if I have too much of a safety blanket, I'm not sufficiently on it when I'm on. So I like to be on my wits. I mean, it's stressful, but I prefer it that way. Whereas Simon Mann, Ali Mitchell, Ishiguha they find it's really therapeutic to write their notes out in longhand and do it at the start of the day. They may not refer to them at any point, but by writing them down, they have embedded that into their head. But I'll give you an example of where it's really worked for me. So when I was doing the Alistair Cook last test match, there was Jonathan Agnew, Simon Mann and I on commentary. And what you didn't want to be was on commentary for when he got out. (laughs) Because it was like, oh, no, trying to sum up the guy's career and all that kind of thing. And the atmosphere is crazy. You'll remember people standing ovations. He broke the world record for standing ovations in that match, got 13 or 14. Anyway, I sat down and he was on 96, was it? And so I was going to get him either out or his 100. And so I thought about what it meant to the crowd and to him and to English cricket if he were to get the 100. Or and indeed, what would happen if he got out? So I had it just as a, a feeling, if you like, a thought, rather than anything written down. And then he plays the ball to backward point, throw comes in, goes out for four overthrows. There's no way you're predicting that's going to happen. <laughs> but because I've immersed myself in cricket for so long, I described that and I said on air at the time, he got to his 100 like that in almost exactly the same way at this same ground against Pakistan eight years ago because do you remember 
that really important hundred. You might even have been commentating on Tesbit Sofa with me and Zulkanen Haider. I was, I think. Zulkanen yeah. Haider was the keeper. Remember him? He still messages me. So yes, I do. Does he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it might have been Mohamed Asif's bowling. I forget. But he threw the ball back and it went sailing over Haider down to the boundary for four. There's no way that I would have written that down as a note. But because my brain has to be so switched on because I haven't got anything in front of me, it allows me to find those references from the past rather than be trammeled into the ones that I think I'm going to mm. want to use before. But it depends on your personality and your temperament. For me, I get the best out of myself by waiting till the last possible minute before writing anything, deadlines right up to the very edge, and going on commentary with nothing in front of me. <laughs> Other people actually want that feeling of safety in order to be able to flourish. So it very much mm. depends on your personality type and character, I think. Mine is mostly individual words. It's a bit like a piece. I don't like to forget something important. I don't like to miss it, but I also don't want to write it down in any... I, I can never write it down in any sort of sentence format. I don't like to have the sentence. Yeah. I, I want the freedom. So if you look at my notepad, and it's the same if I'm doing the third chair job that I do on TalkSport or if I'm doing commentary. It's no real different to me. There'll only be like 20 or 25 words written on a page. If that, sometimes only 15. And I think to other people, it wouldn't mean anything. But to me, it's just like, okay, I can go from here to here to here. How I get there, that's up to me. The yeah. pace of the, the situation will dictate. I noticed that with questions as well. Young journalists come in with like full questions. It's like a paragraph of question. And I yeah. was like, you try and do a paragraph of question when you've got some test captain who's just been dismissed early on and he doesn't want to be at this press conference you've got to read the room a little bit he is actually going to answer your question better if you make it shorter you do this sort of stuff as well and it's a bit like that on air as well if the game is suddenly really really exciting and i'm making a long-winded point about something that yep. needs to be mentioned but it doesn't need to be so i find that for my notes but it's such a flexible broadcast cricket when you look at it that i just I find it incredible that Andrew McKenna's a, a big note taker. Uh, Neil Manthorpe writes a lot down. But then you look at someone like Jim Maxwell, who doesn't seem to really ever be writing anything down. It, you know, it's a very broad church. And I think you almost have to work out the way that works for you best, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because I don't think there's a right or a wrong way. I think if you feel comforted by those notes and the way that, as I said, with Ali and Simon and Isha, a lot of the time it's in the process of writing the notes, that's how they remember mm. important facts that they may need to use in the event you know if a bowler is on 397 wickets then writing that down and remembering it is it's a helpful way of remembering it if you write it down and then you're hyper aware of it or whatever or that this person's come off the back of four single figure scores mm. and writing down three seven six and nine then you can kind of visualize it and it helps when you're going to refer to that in commentary but for me, a really important part of the broadcast, well, there's two things I'd say to this point. Never forget you're live. And the thing about live sport is you've got to do it live. You can't prepare for live because you don't know what's going to happen. So in that situation with Cook, you have no idea that's going to be overthrows that's going to take him to 100. You haven't got a clue. So don't be a slave to your expectations. Just go with the flow. And I think this is really important on radio more than on TV, you've got a stats man. And in my case, on TMS, I've got Andrew Sampson for test matches and Andy Zaltzman for one-day internationals. They are 
absolutely terrific voices and terrific broadcasters. Andrew Sampson, he's the Yoda of <laughs> Statos. And Zoltzman is just so naturally engaging, entertaining, amusing and obsessive that it's criminal not to use them. So I don't need to be there with all the stats. Sometimes mm. if I want a stat, the right thing for the program is for me to ask a question to Andrew Sampson. It has the twin effect of bringing Andrew into the program, and he's a very, very good man to have on the program. And the other thing is it gets the listener thinking about what you've asked first. So they can play the little game with themselves. You know, how many fielders have taken more than 150 catches, Andrew? Andrew's going to take 30 seconds finding that for me. Mm. In the meantime, the audience is thinking, Mark War will have done, wouldn't he? Would Mark Taylor have done it as well? Bobby Simpson, perhaps? Oh, I don't know, Jack Callis. So It's really annoying me how many of those answers you got wrong then, but let's just yeah, carry but, on. Ju- <laughs> well, no, I'm putting myself into the mind of a listener, you know. It still annoyed me, though. <laughs> but the listener could then play along, you know, yeah. and you're bringing them in. The broadcast is not set up for you to show off as a ball-by-baller. It's not set up for you to show off that you know everything. Mm. That's not the point. <laughs> you know, you've got somebody there who does know everything, so use him. I suppose, lastly, I think we've talked a lot about the mechanics of it and how it works and how we both put it together. You started in 2009, so it's over a decade now of broadcasting, and you've talked about TMS, well, the two TMSs for you. You've broadcast some dog cricket. Uh, not not actual dogs, although that would have been better at times, but random games, charity games, all sorts of things. Is there anything that we are missing in commentary that we can move things forward a little bit? Well, this is a really good question because, you know, the 100 is going to come up at some point. Mm. And I was at the um, CPL draft with you and someone from the BBC. We were discussing that, weren't we? Mm. You know, what we should do for the 100 that we wouldn't do for something else. Exactly. And there's a very great need Cricket always feels, because cricket has, as you know, felt under the pump since, ever. well, about 1830 or something, isn't it? <laughs> Literally forever, yeah, since it's been around. So our current fixation is how we can bring people into the game because interest is dwindling in Britain and there isn't that expertise. So is listening to a 50-year-old public school man with a smoky voice saying, <laughs> and here comes Broad, he's got two slips, a silly mid-off, a short leg, a leg gully. Probably not in the hundred, but yes. Yeah, a deep backward square leg. Yeah, but that's because we've been doing it that way, mm. does that actually alienate new listeners? Because the moment they tune in, they hear a load of code. We know mm. what it all means, but a new listener will go, what, what the hell do all these terms mean? What the hell is a gully, for God's sake? You know, Because mm. it's not self-explanatory. No, I would say a huge amount of cricket fans... If you took away the names, well, I know this, I've done this before with people who really know cricket. I'm not talking about tricky ones like extra cover, which could trip up anyone. Yeah. I'm talking about they don't know where these fielding positions are. No. I think we think they know a lot more, but there's a reason that they don't. If you haven't played a lot of cricket, how many times have you been with a cricketer and they'll have played 100 games in their life and you'll say, just go to cover and they look at you blankly? Oh, I know. It's startling, isn't it? Yeah. But my argument is that it's kind of twin. There's another reason for why you do it. And it comes back to one of our the first things we talked about here. It's about rhythm. And in a way, people aren't actually alienated because it's like a kind of oral poetry. It's like sort of water flowing gently from a tap or a gentle stream, which is why you say two slips, gully, cover, extra cover, mid-off, mid-wicket, square leg and a long leg. 
people don't go, well, I don't know what's has happened there. So many words are said on radio that a lot of it is sound. What they're hearing mm. is sound. And so the rhythm of your voice takes you up and down. Tony Cozy was the absolute best at this. You could turn on the radio. If you got me a bit of Tony Cozier at random, I'd be able to tell you within 30 seconds whether the match was on a knife edge, whether one side was well ahead of the other, whether it was really early doors in the match and we still didn't know. Because the tone of his voice and the rhythm of how he did it communicated to you something above and beyond the actual individual moments that you were seeing out Mm. there. It actually explained the situation amazingly. Now, there will be an expectation that when we come to do the 100, we're going to try to de-jargonize it Mm. in order to make it more accessible. And then that's going to pose some interesting issues because if you say that's been hit down to the fielder who's to the right of the right-handed batsman on the edge of the boundary (laughs) in a direct angle of roughly 45 degrees, that's considerably more alienating than third man. (laughs) That's gone down to the gone down to third man. But in a Mm. sense, we're going to have to try to find ways of doing this, I think. Also, I take you back to the idea that cricket commentary is set in stone, that there is a right way and a wrong way. You listen to John Arler, which you will have done, doing Bradman's last ball. And it's staggering, actually. You could never do that now. Hollies, bowled him. Now, the total silence from Arlett, I know this because we just listen to this clip for this podcast we're doing, 48 seconds of, from Arla of total silence. Pretty polite applause because I don't know whether the bikes weren't turned up or whether people just clapped slightly differently in those days. <laughs> but, you know, there wasn't cheering. And all you hear is that. And then he waits and waits and waits and waits and waits. And then he delivers a potentially rather specious line, doesn't he, about I wonder if you can really see the ball properly when you've come out to play your last test innings in front of a guard of honour or something, you know, Mm. implying that he had a tear in his eye, which was a lovely flourish. But that suited 1948. Well, now my producer would just haul me off with a boat hook if I'd been silent for 10 seconds and throw Aggers in there immediately and say, speak for God's sake. I I think there's actually a technical thing, isn't there? Isn't there a, um, if you're dead silent for five seconds or something, the backup comes on on modern radio stations yeah probably does i think you go back to the studio or something so you couldn't even do that so when i got involved so and i think it's a perfect example i don't think that i haven't talked to all the commentators but i think there was a few commentators were like you can't commentate the way that you commentate because you commentate like you're an analyst and a ball by baller at the same time and i said but i am an analyst and a ball by baller like yeah and my style is always going to be different to anyone else's because i put it together with dr frankenstein's monster style Dan Norcross like (laughs) I invented it there to work out there and but if you look at what I do it it is that it wasn't until Manners actually and then Neil Manthorpe sort of said to me oh I thought you were doing that on purpose I said I don't know what I'm doing he said well keep doing that because no one else will be able to do that for a while so that'll be your thing but that actually probably cost me a lot of jobs because a lot of people were like well you should do it this way and I was like I don't think that that's the case anymore I think it's an equal partnership because I think what happened was before you had very much the commentator was so didactic and then yep. you would go for a 15 seconds of analyst. And it's just like, when I do ball by ball with people, I get two things. I either get, you didn't let me talk or so you kept asking me to talk too much. And I was like, well, we're having a conversation, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly it. It's that balance and that all depends on your rapport with your summarizer. So, 
you go back to the late 70s and early 80s and actually even later, all the way up to about 1990-91 when Brian Johnston was still on and Henry Blofeld and Christopher Martin Jenkins, that sort of trio on Test Match Special. And the way it worked was that the ball-by-baller had the ball at the beginning of the over and did not relinquish the microphone mm. until the last ball of the over quite frequently and then goes over to Trevor Bailey, Fred Truman, whoever it happens to be, and then they speak through the break and the over with their thoughts and insights, and then you go back to the ball-by-baller. Well, now <laughs> we're conducting a conversation, as I said earlier, throughout the over. Sometimes, you know, between balls, the same conversation, concluding maybe two overs later, if nothing has come in to stop it. Yep. So you've got a totally different style going. Crucially, of course, all this comes back to what is right and what's wrong. What's right is being you. Mm. You have to be you. If you don't, I mean, look, Ed Smith was a ball by baller and summariser because he started as a summariser, but there were various pressures on the BBC. I don't think they had necessarily as many ball by ballers trained up as they wanted. And so he flipped over, did ball by ball, but he did it always, if you listen to his style, with that kind of analyst's mind. Obviously, because he was an ex-player and he had an, and he was always thinking like an analyst. Mm. So his ball by ball was very much in that style. My analysis is tends to be, I look at it from a captaincy perspective and a game perspective. Mm. You know, why is this happening in the game now? What should the captain be looking to do? And I'll tell you how it was described perfectly in an article. It wasn't actually about cricket commentary. I think it's about Hitchcock, but I use this <laughs> for cricket commentators when I try to explain what, in essence, we do when we come and sit down for our 20 minutes. And a lot of the time, it's this. In Hitchcock, you see a bomb under a table, yeah? So there's two people chatting, and then it'll cut, and there'll be a bomb under the table. And then you go back to the two of them chatting, and then there'll be a quick reminder that there's a bomb there. What you're doing there is you're setting up this bomb that may or may not go off. If you didn't do it that way, if they just chatted, and then a bomb exploded... That would be the first episode of a series of 24, wouldn't it? So that's mm. basically for the shock value. What you do as a ball-by-baller is you sit down and you go, where's the bomb? And the bomb here is, how are they going to get out Virat Kohli? What is the method for doing it? Which bowlers should be doing it? What's the plan for doing it? What's the captain doing right? Or Steve Smith, you know. And that is the bomb. If the bomb goes off, then you've been speaking to that bomb. If it doesn't go off, it doesn't go off. But at least you've raised the tension Mm. about there being a bomb there, if you see what I mean. So that would be my style, I guess, if I was to summarise it. And if the bomb is not about cricket, if it's about something else, if it's about toughers appearing on a painting programme, then what you're doing is you're waiting for the bomb to explode at the end of the anecdote, which is, you know, and then reader, it was an absolutely terrible painting and I lost the competition or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's a technique that is quite a smart thing to do. Whereas in the olden days, as you said, because that conversation flow didn't happen between the ball by ball and the summariser in the same way, they felt like they inhabited different roles and the ball by baller simply acted as that camera. And then the summariser acted as the interpreter of what it was that you'd just heard. Now I think we've got a much more fun, fluid mix between summariser, ball-by-baller and statistician. And you get the opportunity to set up more of those I wonder what. I mean, you'll be doing that all the time with your analysis because 
that's basically what analysis is, isn't mm. it? A lot of the time, you're jobbing forward. I'll give you a great example: matchups. You're big on matchups in T20. Very important things. So you're sitting down. Batsman comes in. Kevin Peterson, let's say, comes in, and you're going. They're going to bring the left arm spinner on against yep. him. He's got a notoriously bad record against left arm spin. You've just set up the bomb. And that's sort of what your role is to do there, isn't it? Mm, yeah, exactly. And I find it even in commentary. I know generally you're with a player, especially because we're non-players. So we're almost always yep. paired up with players. I feel that, you know, you're being playful. You know, you're on with Sean Pollock. And so you make a joke about a wicketkeeper sledging. And you wait for him to buy. And there's that little bit of tension there. And whatever yep. it is, it's because... The best dialogue, I mean, you talked Hitchcock, Tarantino's the other one, isn't it? It's that moment yep. in Inglorious Bastards where you go underneath and you see the Jewish family are under the floorboards and the French farmer, and the whole conversation completely changes. There's that little bit of tension, and when they start speaking in a different language, and that's kind of what you're doing, isn't it? Yep. Because of who I am. You talk about your style of, of being Hitchcock. Mine's probably more that Tarantino. I'm just always just twisting them a little bit. Yeah. I've got Mark Nicholas on. Mark Nicholas will mention a bunch of cricketers, and then he'll say, oh, and I forgot this guy. And I said, yeah, but Mark, he didn't play for Hampshire. And just let it go. And it doesn't matter if he gets involved in it or not. We just changed it from a friendly chat to something where there's an outcome now. And there's a little bit of competition there. There's a little bit of fun. And that's essentially what you're doing. You're taking a very basic conversation and a reaction to another sport. And you're just amping up tension and amping down tension at different times. That's right. Yeah. Opening and closing a valve, really, mm. aren't you? Uh, uh, We're basically heart surgeons. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, it's much, much easier to do, isn't it, if you've immersed your life in cricket? Yes. I mean, let's let's be really clear about this. I think for people who didn't start their commentary life in cricket and weren't necessarily obsessives about cricket, I think becoming a cricket commentator, you could be trained and you could be trained to mm. do it and you will find a way of doing it and you could do it very, very well. For those of us who basically have been watching cricket since we're seven years old, we sort of live in the language of it. It's like being bilingual. You're sort of in the language of cricket. So you know what you're looking out for because you've watched so much cricket. You know where the bombs are or at least what they're made of. <laughs> and you're just pointing them out, pointing out a whole series of them all, all over the place over the course of a day. And it's easy to do that if that's exactly what you've been used to doing anyway because you always watch sports speculatively. When you sit down to watch mm. any bit of cricket – you're thinking about what's going to happen. You don't just sit there and say, this has happened. One last thing, you've got a podcast at the moment, which is all about cricket commentary. Uh, can you run us through that? Yes, it's called Calling the Shots. It's not my idea because that's far too clever for me to have come up with. It was quite smart. It's embedded at the moment inside the Pinch Hitter magazine, which is a terrific initiative which helps freelancers out during this particularly difficult time when, mm. as I'm sure same is true of you. All of our income has instantaneously disappeared. Yeah, wasn't that fun? Uh, no, it, it wasn't great, was it? <laughs> my, my last piece of work was the um, third one-day international between Australia and New Zealand, which never happened. Oh. I was booked for that, and then the New Zealanders had to go home. So nothing in the diary. And the good old pinch hitter has marvellously come along and is helping to commission writing. And this podcast, it's a six-part history of cricket commentary, our first episode we started at the end, if you like, with the big moments from 2019 and from Ali Mitchell calling the Women's World Cup. So we took Ian Smith and Ali Mitchell and talked to them about how you call a really big moment. So talked a little bit there about preparation and 
how on earth you plan for either of those World Cups when mm. they ended in such extraordinary fashion, which was great fun. And then we're going to job all the way back to 1922 and Bannerman's testimonial where the first radio broadcast was made. And we'll do, in this next episode, the stuff before the Second World War where you've got incredible things. I mean, we talk about the difficulties of commentating side on. Alan McGilvray was commentating in a studio in Paris on a ticker tape. With a pencil. With a pencil that he knocked onto a block of wood. Sometimes he timed it not so well, so you'll hear him say, that's been driven through the covers before tap by <laughs> Donald Bradman. Go, oh, other way around, old boy. But I really enjoy it because you get to delve into those old commentators and, and how those pioneers saw cricket commentary. You know, when it first started in 1927, it was in England, that is, it was viewed as a ridiculous notion to have cricket commentary. <laughs> the game was too slow, they thought. They could understand commentary of football and rugby because they're matches at flow. But what on earth do you say when nothing happens? It's amazing how time has moved on that now we probably think that cricket is the perfect sport for radio commentary. When it first happened, it was seen as the least perfect sport for radio commentary. What do you say when nothing happens could be also the uh, topic of this entire podcast. So thank you very much for coming on. <laughs> Jared, an absolute pleasure. I miss working with you on Test Match Sofa. I hope that we will be reunited at some point down the line. As long as we don't come out of lockdown and discover, I'm getting very worried that all these young people are being encouraged to become commentators. I don't want to have a year of my working life ruined and then come out of lockdown and to discover that there's about 10 bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, brilliant commentators who are going to take our jobs. Being us, we will just find some other weird way to rig out our way back into the industry. <laughs> yeah, you'll never get rid of us. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks for listening. You can follow my guest at Norcross Cricket. I remember when he was at Sofa Dan. Oh, those were the days. I tweet and Instagram and do many other things as well. Also in the show notes is the link to the commentary podcast that Dan is working on with Adam Collins. If you could place a review on Apple Podcasts, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe an angel gets to listen to the show every time you do. So that's uh, quite an important thing there if you like angels, if you believe in angels, if you like the show. Also, this podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon. They listen to this first, and they're wonderful, each in their own unique ways. So if you can help us out on Patreon, it is very helpful. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the Mixmaster General, and the theme tune is by the Red Crickets. Podcast Network.